1: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am most pleased and indeed honored to have with us, once again, Professor Philip Zelikoff. Professor Zelikoff, who is Professor of History at the University of Virginia, is of course known to many of you in his various roles, both in public service as well as in academia. Uh, and he has indeed co-authored or authored a good number of well-received books. And today, we are discussing his latest book, The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917, published by Public Affairs. Welcome, Professor Zelikoff.
0: Glad to be with you.
1: Professor, why did you write this book?
0: Well, uh, uh, I discovered... A, um some years ago, evidence that I pursued over a number of years that indicated that the basic story of why America went into World War One was fundamentally misunderstood, and that, moreover, uh, the world had reached a pivotal turning point in the history of the First World War that also was barely understood at all, that is, um, the war uh, came very close to being successfully negotiated to an end at the midway point at the end of 1916. um, All the circumstances were in place to have ended the war. Uh, um, There was a widespread and very secret understanding that President Woodrow Wilson was going to mediate an end to the war. And in fact, the reason the Germans adopted the widened U-boat war that ended up bringing America into the war was because these peace talks had failed. And when um, you discuss this with people, um, you say, well, we had the U-Boat War. America entered the war because the peace talks failed. The usual reaction is what peace talks? Um, Even the existence of these peace talks is itself uh, uh, hardly known at all that they came so close to success not known at all. And of course, had these uh, talks succeeded, they would have ended the war before the Russian Revolution, before the Bolshevik takeover, before the collapse, the violent collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and before uh, two two years more of war in Western Europe took millions of lives. So the entire course of world history would have changed the fundamental relationship of the United States to the world and of European and Middle Eastern history would have changed. This was a turning point in the great cataclysm of the early 20th century that um, is not really understood at all uh, because it was an entirely secret issue at the time and evidence only slowly began leaching out about it, first from German sources and then later a little more from American sources, and finally from British sources. And as other reviewers have recognized, mine is the first book to actually put all of that evidence together in one place and, and fill out this astonishing picture.
1: Would it be correct to say that from your description of him in the book, President Woodrow Wilson appears to have been singularly devoid of any diplomatic experience and indeed of any of the skills that go into the diplomatic
0: art? I think that's maybe too harsh. Um, he had no diplomatic experience. Um, his, um, what he had was experience in adopting public positions on world issues. Um, so, for instance, on the issue of should America intervene in the war on the allied side? Uh, Wilson adopted a position, a centrist position in American politics at the time, and actually a position um, that the majority of Americans supported. Wilson also, um, then in navigating the dispute with the Germans over uh, submarine attacks and disputes with the British, again was uh, had some skill in enunciating a position and in crafting diplomatic notes to maintain that position. Again, by the way, a centrist position in American politics at the time that enjoyed majority support. But in a way, your your comment, your question is is right, Is uh, though despite Wilson's uh, success in finding the centrist position in American politics that the majority of Americans supported Despite his further success in realizing that the war needed to be ended by a negotiated peace, that the basic terms of that peace would be, as he put it, a peace without victory for either side, that he had the leverage to get such a peace, he recognized all those things. He did not have the diplomatic experience or skill to actually arrange the peace conference, the The concrete details of actually how to do that eluded him, and he fumbled that issue in extraordinarily fateful ways, a story that actually is so strange you almost have to read the details to grasp it.
1: And would it not be the case that the same deficiencies are apparent in uh, President Wilson's Gray Evidence Colonel House?
0: Uh, In fact, Wilson's deficiencies are much worse in House's case. What you have um, in House, uh, Edward House, uh, for your listeners who don't recognize this, uh, Edward House was uh, Wilson's singular advisor on the issues of European politics, but he comes to this role in a very strange way. He is an expatriate Texan living in New York City. He is a private citizen. Um, not employed by the U.S. government. He um, had become a close friend and political advisor to the president since really 1912, mainly on issues of Democratic Party politics and patronage, not mainly on other policy subjects. But because he had done a number of grand tours to Europe and – was believed to have and did have uh, an excellent network of acquaintances in high circles in London. Wilson regarded him then as an authoritative bridge to understanding the European world, which uh, a political world, which Wilson only understood from newspapers and books. House, however, was a, an entirely dilettantish amateur. Um, a, Sometimes a shrewd observer and listener, but really had no particular grounding in how to approach a diplomatic strategy or construct one. So in a way, Wilson was House's guide and superior to House in seeing the grand strategy of how America should strike its position and seeing the need to end the war and seeing the leverage he had over the Allied side and seeing the urgency of bringing the war to an end on all these issues. Wilson's judgment was superior where he leaned on House was to help him arrange the details and it was a, in exactly in that matter that House uh, not only utterly failed Wilson but actually made matters much worse um he uh, not only could not had no skill to arrange any of the details to actually get the peace conference going he uh, absolutely misread the situation in london the one capital that wilson supposed house understood
1: indeed uh, and near the end of the book you asked the question whether house was uh, quote a fool or a villain uh in your uh analysis which one would you uh, characterize him as
0: well in the book i actually uh ended up concluding well a bit of both uh the uh other readers who are bewildered by House's performance in this uh, supreme moment, in some way the most pivotal episode in the entire history of American diplomacy. Um, of course, Wilson's reliance on House is itself a puzzle that I try to explore. But um, House's own motives, uh, it, you can he seems to be uh, kind of co-conspiring with the worst elements in the British camp. But actually, that's an overreading of his rationality and intelligence. Um, if you follow the evidence closely, I think there are signs that he's simply incompetent, um, and uh, trying to hide that incompetence while taking the lead from others about what to do, um, and kind of, but yet concealing this beneath a veneer of cosmopolitan understanding, and. Um, so the actually answers house, a fool or a villain in the story, as I said, uh, um, a bit of both. The, the role is extraordinarily faithful. Um, the book also spends a lot of time on what's going on in Germany and on what's going on in Britain as well as in France. And when you put all of these stories together, you see actually that all the ingredients were in place to have obtained a compromise peace. The, the Germans were ready to compromise and even made the major compromises without even being asked in their discussions with the Americans very secretly. And the British and French were not in a position to even continue the war at the previous level very much longer because another huge secret, kept super secret at the time, was that the, um, the Allied side was about to go bankrupt in the dollars they needed to sustain the war.
1: They would have gone bankrupt in the spring of 1917 without further replenishment of American financial and monetary assistance. Is that, is that the gist of it?
0: That's right. Um, the, uh, and Wilson actually had effectively cut off the supply of those funds in order to bring the British to the peace table. He had done this, by the way, quite skillfully, uh, secretly orchestrating this move, with the American Federal Reserve Board uh, in November 1916, uh, that effect, that told American banks not to make any unsecured loans to the British or French, for that matter, and the British were simply uh, were about to run out of the collateral to get any other kind of loans. So uh, the true con- the The desperation of the British condition was secret, but internally the British themselves knew that really from November 1916 on it was just a matter of time before the money ran out. And they were uh, gambling and hoping that something would turn up and actually in the event uh, something did. Uh, Wilson fumbled the peacemaking on multiple occasions actually. Um, even at uh, to the very last moment at the end of January 1917, and uh, the British who were already beginning to, under their new prime minister, David Lloyd George, uh, who had publicly vowed to fight to the finish yet privately knew how desperate things were, uh, were actually preparing the possibility of having to go ahead and make the compromise peace, And then the Germans, having given up on Wilson, having concluded that Wilson was not going to try to make peace, the military, the German high command was able to have its way and persuade the Kaiser to instead try to end the war with the U-boat panacea.
1: Now, uh, is it it correct to say that you have a different uh, view of uh, the German Imperial Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Hollweg? Than uh, some historians say, the German historian Fritz Fischer, in that you do not view Bethmann holweg as being a um, annexationist.
0: Oh yes, I, I I absolutely differ from Fischer on that. And actually, I think Fischer's the his, Fischer's historiography for uh, this period of the war mostly the mostly the indictment of Bethmann relates to analysis of his compliance with uh, German nationalism and uh, right-wing fervor in the period just before the outbreak of the war in 1914 and in the period right at the time of the outbreak of the war in 1914. And on that issue, um, Fischer's criticism has its greatest weight. But as you get to the end of 1914 and into 1915 and beyond, There's simply no doubt if you examine the evidence that uh, Bettmann was opposed to the annexationists. The annexationists perfectly well understood this and did everything they could to depose Bettmann and had been after him for more than a year. Um, At the time uh, that Bettman uh, orchestrates the opening of the secret peace talks with the Americans, which he does in with the Kaiser's full support, by the way, in August, 1916. Um, Peace talks that then go on for the next five months, Uh, again, with the Kaiser's uh, uh, support, with Betman having beaten back the militarists, having arranged the dismissal of the Navy chief, arranged the dismissal of the Army chief, won the Kaiser's support for a compromise peace, coordinated the compromise peace with the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman allies, secured support for a compromise peace from key elements in German politics, all very secretly, all in the autumn of 1916, uh, has offered the Americans to restore Belgium as a token of his good faith uh, and interest. So all that has happened. Fisher takes very little account of all of this. Incidentally, I will say that the more that other historians, even at the time, like Gerhard Ritter, did a better job, I think, of handling Bettmann during the war than Fisher did, Um, And the most uh, recent historian of this period, uh, the outstanding historian, Holger Offlerbach, whose uh, work about uh, this period of his masterwork on this period of the war is still not available in English. So I think it's being translated now. Um, It is available in German, Messer Schneider. Uh, uh, I think Offlerbach's account of this period and his interpretation of the Germans uh, lines up with my own, but it is different from Fisher's picture. Yes.
1: Would it be correct to say that in your treatment, the issues of Belgium and Alsace-Lorraine do not represent insuperable barriers to achieving a peace?
0: That is correct. Um, in fact, the French, the French knew this. Uh, one of the disclosures and revelations, really, in my book. Um, And one other that's recently been published uh, this year in in Britain is that the French president, Poincare, also in August 1916, uh, privately confided to Britain's king that France had to make peace as soon as possible, uh, that uh, the French people didn't know how bad the situation was. Uh, He was very worried about how the war would go, Quite rightly, as it turns out, uh, if America had not come in, the allied cause was probably doomed. Um, and Poincaré w- and thought that this had to be wrapped up with a mediation from Wilson, which he expected would occur in the autumn of 1916. Uh, all correct. And through his prime minister uh, at the time, uh, uh, Aristide Briand, um, Poincare and Briand actually were beginning to orchestrate some highly secret informal talks with the Germans in Switzerland about how to handle the Alsace Lorraine issues in the context of a compromise peace. Um, these very sensitive negotiations conducted by informal emissaries were working through various ways to make some adjustments and sovereignty and so on to at least provide some face-saving way to handle that issue and ending the war because the French well knew that if, if the war ended with a compromise, there was no way that the French could simply win back all of Alsace and Lorraine because they, they couldn't get that on the battlefield. So uh, that uh, there would have to be, but there had to be some face-saving compromise on that issue so that, germany could germany and france could come to an understanding about that and betman and briand were working on just such just such ideas but it's all in the context of their expectation that they were moving towards some kind of compromised peace settlement in the winter of 1916 and all of that hinged on the americans doing their job and Uh, calling the peace conference and bringing everyone together uh, to compromise, using America's uh, uh, very, very great clout, especially financial clout, to help bring that about.
1: Why did President Wilson break off diplomatic relations with Germany upon receiving the note about the resumption of unrestricted
0: warfare? Well, Wilson had laid down a bright line to the Germans um, about what he would tolerate and what he would not which was that uh, basically that the, he demanded German submarines at least obey what were called the rules of cruiser warfare, which is that they had to at least warn ships and allow the passengers to get to the lifeboats if, if these were unarmed ships. So if the, before the Germans could sink an unarmed vessel, they were supposed to warn them and let people get into the lifeboats. The German uh, Bettmann, had finally accepted that condition in May 1916. In the literature, this is called the so-called Sussex Pledge. So when the high command uh, had its way at last in January 1917 and persuaded the Kaiser that the now, since Wilson was not going to move forward with the peace talks, they thought, because of these fumbles that I was alluding to earlier, therefore, the only way to end the war was the U-boat. To go back to the unrestricted U-Boat War. Now, interestingly, uh, after finally the Kaiser says, all right, uh, uh, he agrees with that, having been uh, ha- that high command argument having been made for more than a year, he finally gives way. But even then, uh, Bettmann is able to persuade the Kaiser to allow him to make one last effort to uh, get Wilson to get the peace talks going. Wilson had asked Bettmann to confide Germany's likely terms for peace confidentially to the Americans. And Bettman sent Wilson the message doing just that, to show Wilson that he was interested in compromise. But then what happened, I mean, literally these two messages arrive in Washington on the same day. One, the public message that Germany is going to, resume unrestricted submarine warfare, and thus uh, crossing the red line Wilson had laid down back in May 1916 the Sussex Point. Yet then the same day comes the secret message from the chancellor saying, look, you asked me to give you these, uh, some, to confide our terms to you. Here they are, as you wished, and if you call this peace conference, we will stop the submarine war when it gets going. And Wilson, though, is so angry um, initially, and encouraged a bit in this by House, that he um, immediately breaks off diplomatic relations with Germany in reaction to the U-Boat war move, and sends the German ambassador home, and doesn't seriously examine the, the other message that he got from the German chancellor trying yet again to keep the peace talks alive. The result of this, though, is since Wilson actually wasn't eager to go into the war, he finds himself debating for the next two months whether or not uh, is there any way to keep from going into the war. But at this point, he's he's dashed the road to peace because he sent the German ambassador home. He didn't seriously analyze the um, the German Chancellor's message, and so he's essentially burned the bridges to uh, to do to arrange the peace conference. Yet he doesn't want to go to war, but finds that now the road to war is the only road he's left open to himself. And so the world enters this tragic uh, new phase.
1: In a counterfactual exercise, what would have likely to have occurred? If the Germans had not recommenced unrestricted
0: submarine warfare, oh well, then I think the uh, either Wilson would have the peace conference would have been successfully arranged, and the war would have ended in negotiated peace in early 1917. There would have been a ceasefire in early 1917 or if for some reason the peace conference had not been arranged, but the Germans had not declared the U-boat war, if America had not entered the war, yet there's no peace, well then the allies likely would would have have lost the war by the end of 1917. Um, Russia, because one of the allies, Russia, was about to implode and disintegrate into chaos. Um, And the allies proceeded to uh, Bludgeoned themselves, kind of bludgeoned themselves to death in a series of feudal offensives during 1917 that uh, broke the back of the French army to a large degree, uh, bled the British army white, and uh, crushed the Italian uh, and, and left the Italians open to a counteroffensive that caused the whole Italian front to collapse in the fall of 1917. So. I mean, the situation of the and and they would have been going bankrupt in the dollars to sustain the war, which was 40% of the British war effort, a larger fraction of the Allied war effort than the entire war economy of France. So really, the, the Germans didn't realize uh, how bad the Allied situation was. Um, so one of the huge ironies of the story is the German high command, with their insistence on the U-boat war, actually rescued their deadliest enemies from defeat. <laughs> the, uh, but of course, the surpassing tragedy uh, beyond even that is is that there really was then this excellent opportunity to just end the war and stop the killing and stop the further uh, wrecking of Europe and the Middle East, uh, which then did so much damage to shadow the rest of the 20th century.
1: Would it be true to say that if your book had a hero in it, it would be Beth Manholte?
0: You know, a, a couple of the reviewers have made that point. Neil Ferguson made that point in the TLS, and um, very clearly. And I think Andrew Roberts, in his uh, very generous review in, in the Telegraph, made a similar point. And I think that's—I uh, think readers who see that are about right. Um, Bettmann is uh, is not a, a traditional heroic figure. He's not a charismatic figure. He slipped into the shadows. His conduct at the outset of the war has been frequently blamed. Uh, by the way, no one blamed Bettmann more about the outset of the war than Bettmann did himself. Uh, the war took the life of Bettmann's son later in 1914, And Bettmann was tormented by guilt about whether he had done enough to uh, to keep the war from breaking out in 1914. He blamed himself. In fact, he confided to a friend. He said, uh, the thought never leaves me, he said. And I think this was a a powerful reason why uh, Bettmann was so strongly motivated to try to find some way to end the fighting and end the war. And of course, the the political argument that he developed, which was quite shrewd and is the way it would have been done in all the in all the warring powers, is the argument he was developing was that Germany had effectively won because Germany was fighting in self-defense, which, by the way, it's hard for the English speaking world to understand this. But that is actually the narrative of the war that most Germans believe they believe. That they were encircled by hostile powers, that they had been ambushed into the war, by the plotting principally by the Serbs and the Russians, that their territory had been invaded principally by the Russians, which is true. Russia did invade Germany and Austria-Hungary at the outset of the war, that they had thrown back the invaders, and so Betman's story would have been, if we if we save the Germany we created in 1871, against this enormous encircling conspiracy. This is, will have been an enormous success for German arms and the German people. Um, we fought the war in self defense and we did successfully defend ourselves. That was the story he would have used politically. And he had uh, rehearsed that story and that story was working. Of course, uh, the French would have been able to have the same story for their people, and the British would have been able to have the same story for their people, since all of them believed they were fighting in self-defense. And so all of them could have had the narrative with a compromised peace that they had successfully defended themselves from aggression.
1: One final question. Why do you rate Wilson's failure to make peace in this period as, quote, the most consequential diplomatic failure in the history of the United States, unquote?
0: I don't find any other episode in the entire history of the United States in which American diplomacy had such an enormous opportunity to change the path of world history. I'm, I've actually written two books about the Cuban Missile Crisis, so I'm familiar with that uh, episode. But um, and that's important. But the the scales of what was at stake if one could have ended this war at this point, before the Russian revolution and the Bolshevik takeover, which would not have happened if the war had ended. I think every historian of Russia would agree on that. There's no scenario in which the Bolsheviks were able to take over Russia if Russia is not in the war. And the, I mean, it's not a, it's not that if the war had ended in 1916, everyone would have been happy no that would have been a bitter scarred sullen conclusion but as bad as that would have been it would have been infinitely better than the alternative and then of course what happened too is that uh, by involving itself in this way with sending two million troops to France Wilson then had to build up hopes for what the war would achieve that were unattainable And then the disillusionment, when those unattainable hopes were not attained, would then feed the isolationism and distaste that helped create the conditions for the 1930s and the Second World War. So to come back then to all the things that are at stake here in 1916, and all the elements were in Wilson's grasp. The Germans had had secretly sought the peace and had put the compromises on the table. Wilson had complete power to force the allies to end the war financially and had already begun to use it successfully. Um, the, The basic substantive ingredients for a compromise peace were understood among all the warring powers. And so it was fundamentally attainable and was not attained simply through a, a fail, an operational failure to be able to pull it off, to be able to arrange the peace conference before the Germans gave up on Wilson after five months of trying. So again, given what was possible, given the momentous quality of that period in history, I do think this is the most significant failure in diplomacy in all of American history. And uh, interestingly, it's uh, an episode that's hardly known at all, uh, to, even to historians, because as I say, so many ingredients of the story have been uh, buried in the archives for so long.
1: On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Zelikoff, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
0: Oh, thank you, Charles.